Well, isn't it exciting? I'll tell you what, the, the energy, the thought, and the concern that we have for striving to do the work of the Lord, what a beautiful, this opportunity to pray every month is just uh, so strengthening, and uh, we're so grateful to have that opportunity and that privilege. Can everyone understand the Bible alike? You'll notice the question does not say, does everyone understand the Bible alike? I think we realize that the answer to that, without thinking very hard, is no. Everybody does not understand the Bible alike. In fact, all you would need to do is to go to the latest yearbook of American and Canadian churches, and you'll find a number listed there of distinct religious groups from one another. And that number, the last I saw, was 217. And it doesn't take long when you begin to examine more closely and you'll find that there is a vast difference of viewpoint and conclusions on a great many basic doctrines that you'll find in the Bible. What is the nature of Jesus? Some who would profess to be Christians would have the belief that He is deity, that He is the Son of God. Some would say He's a created being. Some would say that he is a good man, but not what the New Testament teaches. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? And there's a wide spectrum of belief that ascribes work to the Holy Spirit that we don't see found in the Scriptures. There's a diverse viewpoint with regard to the end of time. And what does God say on the matter of salvation? And how is the church to be organized? And how is the church to be led? Who is saved and who is lost? And the list is literally endless. You know, the late J.D. Thomas says that of all disciplines of human concern, that there is more subjective thought and more prejudices. We're less objective and we're less scientific when it comes to theology or matters religious than we are in any other matter of life. All manner of sin and chaos and conflict results because we look at religion as a subjective thing. And if truth is not objective, what we're left with is that it's subjective. It's subject to whatever the individual believes that that it should be. We don't in any other area of life Seek to be anything but objective and scientific. Think with me about that for a moment. In the area of plumbing, don't we want objective scientific standards? If you have to replace the bleeder valve on your hot water heater, and it's three-quarter inch in diameter, would you believe it would be okay to put a five-eighths inch or a half inch in the place of that three-quarter inch bleeder valve? And if you did, what would you expect would happen? You'd have a flood in your house. What about in the matter of electricity? If you call gold and silver, ceramic and silicon rubber, does that make a conductor an insulator? And would you want an electrician who says it really doesn't matter because it's all relative when you get down to it? Or how about in the matter of medicine? How would you feel about going to a hospital where the doctors and the nurses prescribe epinephrine and morphine interchangeably because really there's no objective standard with regard to that? You see, in every discipline of life, we believe that there is an authoritative point of view, that there's a measuring stick that's a, a scientific in its nature. And as a result of that, we can trust that it is knowable, whatever that particular thing is. 
But in what matters more than anything else, in religious concerns, we ask the question again, is there an objective standard? Does God not in His Word give us an authoritative point of view? And His is the only point of view that matters. In John chapter 8, Jesus is discussing His truth with individuals, some of whom are believing and accepting Him, and some of who are greatly resisting Him. Some are opposing, they're rationalizing in the face of Jesus' teaching, but Jesus speaks to some who are His believers. And in John chapter 8 and verse 31, He says, If you continue in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they said unto him, We are Abraham's descendants and have not yet been enslaved to anyone. So how do you say then, You shall be made free? Jesus said to them, Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not abide in the house forever, but the son abides in the house forever. And if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus is talking here about truth. And he says something more about truth later on as he's praying in uh, the garden as he's about to be arrested. And he says to his father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. This indicates to us very clearly that to the extent that we know the word of God, we're going to know God's truth. And if we want to know what God's truth is on any subject that matters ultimately, we have got to go to the word of God. And so then the question becomes then, if truth is found here and only here, can everyone approach this book and can we all understand the Bible alike? I want to just very briefly notice four observations that Jesus makes about truth that can help us to understand that. The first thing we notice from Jesus is that he tells us that truth is conditional. Now you see that, don't you, in the way that Jesus sets this up. The question is, who is truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? And here's what he says. He says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Whenever you see these if-then statements anywhere, what you're seeing is a conditional statement. The if part needs to be required, and if it's not fulfilled, then the then part cannot be fulfilled. But if we do the if, then we can expect the then. If we see the requirements and we meet the requirements, the then, the benefit, the consequence is to follow. And that's just the way we communicate. And it's the way that God communicates throughout His Word. If you'll think about the diversity of ways in the New Testament in which Jesus speaks and the New Testament speaks conditionally, we see that play out. For example, on the matter of forgiveness, Jesus sets it up conditionally. And after giving us the model prayer in Matthew 6 and verse 15, He says, if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. Later on in Matthew 16 and verse 24, He implies the then, but you can see it in the statement. He says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. On the matter of the resurrection, Jesus is saying your whole faith rests on this conditional idea. He says in um, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Or in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, he says, If justification comes by the law, then Christ died needlessly. Or in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, when it comes to our personal ethics, If anyone will not work, then neither shall he eat. Or in Hebrews chapter 12, 
in verse 8, if we are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then are we illegitimate children and not sons? So everywhere we turn in the scriptures, we see this conditional nature of truth. When it comes to anything that we see in the scriptures, we see Jesus telling us that there is a benefit to be gained, but only if the requirement is met. And if the hypothetical is true and the conclusion is true, then the conditional part must be true as well. We observe this in math and grammar and logic and in everyday walks of life. And so Jesus is helping us as we approach truth in Scripture. And and in so doing, he helps us to see we can understand it all alike. If it matters, that truth is conditional. But second, we see Jesus teaches us that truth is knowable. He says, and you will know the truth. You know, a great many philosophers and educators would disagree with Jesus. They would say that truth is not knowable and it cannot be known. And with that being the case, what they would say is that what you think and what you feel and what you believe is acceptable because truth is relative. And as that is a philosophy that we know very well, we realize all the trouble that comes in the wake of that, but it's the way a lot of people live when it comes to religious conclusions that we just can't know. Not to burst your bubble if you're a Penelope Cruz fan, but she epitomizes this, the Hollywood actress that said, I I was baptized and I had my first communion and I worship God in my own ways. But the philosophy that I'm most aligned with is Buddhism because it is the one that doesn't say this is the only way. I follow God in the way that I want. Isn't that kind of typical of religious thinking so often? That truth is what I say that it is. There are no ways for us to truly know truth. I want you to imagine a scenario with me. A story is told. It's not a preacher's story. I don't know. It was not conveyed whether it actually happened or not, but it's very plausible. Stories told of a man who was casing a jewelry store in order to try to rob that. And in the midst of his case in the the place, he came inadvertently across the owner and they began a conversation. And they warmed up to one another in the course of the conversation. The owner of the jewelry store said, I believe that truth is relative. I do not believe that there are absolute rights and wrongs. And the jewelry thief thought about that and he said, you know, I was raised to believe that God determines right and wrong. But since I've grown up, I have also concluded that there is no absolute right or wrong. And they conversed about different things. Of course, the owner didn't know who he was he was talking to. And later that night, the thief comes into the store to rob it. And the owner, for whatever reason, found himself in that store in the wrong place in the wrong time, face to face now with this robber. And the robber has a conversation with that owner of the store in which he says, I'm here to rob you. I'm going to take what I want. And the man says, take what you want. Just please spare my life. Leave me alone. And the man said, I am going to take what I want. And because you've seen my face and you know what I look like and I don't want to go to jail, I'm going to have to kill you. And the man in response to that said, please don't do that. In desperation, he says, it wouldn't be right. And the thief said in reply, wait a minute, remember, there are no absolute wrongs or rights. 
The man pled with him saying, I have a wife and I have children and the thief is untouched. And in a last act of desperation, he said, well, wait a minute. It would be a crime against society. Society says it's wrong and so don't do it because it's wrong to society. And he says, as you might can tell, I don't let society subscribe to me the morals that I ought to have. And so because he says that, in his last act he says, well look, I promise I will not tell anybody what you look like. And the thief did not trust that he could believe that man to keep his word. And so as you would think, that doesn't end very well for the owner. We might say this man shouldn't do this because society says that it's wrong, but that would not make this man any more alive. He would be the logical conclusion of his own philosophy. In this life, we all crave at least some absolutes. You know, if standing in front of an oncoming bus can't harm you, then it doesn't matter. But if it could hurt you and even kill you, you need to know that. If sticking a needle into an electric outlet can't hurt you, then it doesn't matter. But if sticking a needle in an electric outlet can hurt you and even kill you, you need to know that. If God doesn't exist and He doesn't determine our ultimate destiny, then nothing matters. But if He does exist, we need to know that. My face in the mirror isn't wrinkled or drawn. The house is not dirty. The cobwebs are gone. The garden is lovely, and so is my lawn. I think I might never put my glasses back on. You know, when you think about the Bible, it's glasses. It's a way for us to see. And God has given us a clear vision, a clear picture, so that we can look into His Word and we can know. Jesus says, you will know the truth. And so all of us, when we come to the Bible, can know what God's Word says with some confidence. There is absolute truth. So nobody can look and see the statement, Thou shalt not kill, and conclude that it's alright to commit murder. That no one would come to the command, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and believe that extramarital affairs are okay. I can't believe when I look in Scripture that I can worship any way that I want to if God has already spoken on that matter. And I can't say that I can be saved any way that I want to if God has conclusively spoken about that. So listen to Jesus. In this text, He says that truth not only is conditional, but it's knowable. And yet there's a third and beautiful quality to this idea of truth. Jesus tells us that truth is redeemable. There's a benefit to be had He says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. Jesus tells us that truth is freeing. And it's a hard pill for us to swallow to see that we need freedom when we so often think that we're already free. But Jesus says, I have the ability to make you free and I do so through the truth. And he tells us at least four things about this freedom that truth brings in this text. He shows us something about the assurance of freedom. He says, and you will know the truth. It's a trustworthy statement. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We can know that it's so. There's an assurance with this truth. But he also shows us something about the power of freedom. He says, uh, the truth will make you free. You know, this points to us the great beauty of the gospel itself. Where the Bible says in Romans 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. 
God has his ability to save rested in the gospel. And when we come to the word and we see what it says, then it tells us that this power is to be found there and nowhere else. If it matters to my soul's salvation, then I'm not going to accept any alternative. According as his divine power has given to us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and his excellence. But then he shows us about the individuality of freedom. He says, the truth will make you free. There's an individual response to be made to the truth. And if we know the truth, and of course that knowledge will say something more about that. It's not just intellectual, but it's kinetic. It's going to lead to action. It's going to make you free. But it's also a reminder that I can't do that for somebody else, and they can't do it for me. I might want to will somebody else, but what Jesus says is is that the truth will make you free. And then he shows us something about the, the nature of that freedom. He tells us then about the power of it. In verse 32 and verse 33, it makes you free from the slavery of sin. These Jews are rebuffed by this idea that they're enslaved. But Jesus says you have a master. And what the truth can do is it can make you free. You have a problem and there's one solution. And the solution is what Jesus comes to bring. In Romans 6 and verse 17, Paul says, But God be thanked that you were the slaves of sin, but you obeyed from the heart that form of teaching that was delivered unto you. And being made free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. There's an emancipating quality to truth. But we've got to understand and believe that there is absolute truth in order for us to appreciate that. Barna Research Group uh, did a very large and vast poll with regard to what people believe about absolute moral truth. And one of the first questions in the survey was, what do you think about the moral condition of this country? And 80% of all the respondents in that survey, regardless of their generation, there was no real change from generation to generation, said, I'm concerned, I'm gravely concerned about the condition of our country morally. But in the question down the line, they were asked about that, and 57% of them said that individuals decide what moral truth is. It's left to individual expression. 65% of those who were captured in this survey would say in another question that they believe that society or culture determines absolute moral truth. In a very flatly asked question, how many of you believe in absolute moral truth? Only 35% of respondents said... I believe there is absolute moral truth that's true for everyone in every place. And the president of Barna, uh, David Kinneman, says that this has given rise to a new morality in which the individual looks within to see truth instead of looking to an external source. And of course, for the Christian, that would be, for everyone it is, but the Christian would recognize this as the Bible. You know, it has been a popular saying in the last five or ten years to speak your truth. And while I realize there's a good application of that, so often what it means has been defined by one blogger to say that you should follow your own beliefs and your own feelings and your own morals. Don't let anyone else tell you what that ought to be. Look within yourself and find and then speak your truth. Now, whether or not Oprah Winfrey came up with the saying, speak your truth. It's an ancient philosophy. 
And we learn from the time that we come into this world that there is absolute truth. From the time that we hit our head on the slats in the crib. Or from the time as a toddler that we're leaning back in our uh, high chair and gravity takes us over, we realize that there's truth. There's not my truth and your truth. There's God's truth. And what Jesus says about that is that this truth is rewarding, but it's also freeing. It is that which redeems. But then Jesus points out something else about this truth. He says about truth that truth is resistible. He's not going to make us accept that. Jesus is speaking to a group that are rationalizing and they're trying to push back on what Jesus says. They're defending their position against what Jesus is teaching. And they say to him on that occasion that we're Abraham's seeds and we're not enslaved to anyone. Though Jesus, the Son of God, is diagnosing and is saying that there's a problem. And this scenario is reproduced endlessly today. And there are any number of reasons why someone might resist the truth. It could just be a stubborn will. It could be self-deception. It could be choosing tradition over revelation. It could be personal prejudice. And really there's any number of reasons why. But what Jesus says is, I'm the one who comes to bring this wonderful blessing of salvation, of freedom. And so we resist at our own peril. We can choose to resist it, but what the Bible says is is that God's wrath is reserved for those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. But let's make this practical for just a moment with just two very quick examples. Number one, some say, I don't do organized religion. And so I don't go to church. What we need to do is is to go to Scripture and see what truth is presented with regard to that. What is Jesus's, what are New Testament writers' viewpoints with regard to that? In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul is speaking and he says, Take heed unto yourself and unto all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church which Jesus purchased with his own blood. A beautiful fact of the matter is in Ephesians 3 and verse 20, to Him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ, world without end. Or in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, that Christ is the head of the church and He is the Savior of the body. He loved the church so much that He gave Himself for it. And so when we come to Scripture, instead of resisting that, we embrace that. We see that that's what God says on that matter. Another example that we might give has to do with how one enters into a saved relationship with Christ. The Bible teaches us that we must be baptized based on our faith in Jesus Christ and our repentance of sins. In order to have our sins forgiven, we must contact His blood through baptism. In the religious world, so many push back against that and even argue against it. But we resist that to our own peril. God's truth is truth if we accept it or beat ourselves against it. But the Bible gives us examples of those who came into a saving relationship through baptism from Pentecost in Acts 2 to individuals like the eunuch in Acts 8 to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 22. There are outright statements that say things like he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. Baptism saves us, 1 Peter 3, 21. And principles of scripture like we in baptism arise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6 and verse 4. 
that says that we're clothed with Christ in baptism. Galatians 3 and verse 27, And by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. And any specific where God says this is what's at stake, this is not in the realm of opinion and judgment. There are areas where God gives us liberties, but where God has stated that there's an eternal outcome that is resting upon this, when He puts it out there for us, we do realize that truth is resistible, resistible, but it's resistible to our own peril. Those who believed and who saw that were among those that John holds up in his writings. John uses this phrase, this idea, both in the gospel and in the epistles. In John chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21, the passage that was read to us a moment ago, Jesus says that the one who practices the truth comes into the light. Here he says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, he says that if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And in 1 John chapter 2 verse 3 and 4, he says, the one who says that he knows him and does not keep his commandment, the truth is not in him. But the converse of that is equally true. The one who knows his word and keeps his commandment, the truth is is in him. Then John follows that up by saying, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And this very simple conversation that Jesus is having with those who are listening to him, those who believed in him, those who were resisting his message, Jesus lays out four simple facts about truth. Truth is conditional. There's a benefit when we meet the requirement. But truth is knowable. It is not too difficult for us to comprehend. If it matters, then we know it. But it's also redeemable. God has set truth up so that it will make us free from the bondage of sin. And God gives us the freedom to choose. And He says you can resist the truth. The fact of the matter is that we cannot add to God's Word and create our own standards and say that this is truth. That adds to what God has given us in His Word. But at the same time, we cannot say that what God has put in His Word as truth is not to be followed. It gets back to our question, can everyone understand the Bible alike? Yes, they can. We can know the truth, and the truth will make us free. Perhaps tonight you're ready to be set free from the bondage of sin. It requires something that none of us could do for ourselves. It required the sacrifice of Jesus, the very one who came to give us freedom from sin. He's given us a simple answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? If you're ready to respond to that invitation call, He's waiting for you. Perhaps you're a child of God in need of forgiveness or in need of prayers for strength in living the Christian life. If we can help you and encourage you in any way, if you need to respond publicly, come now as together we stand and sing.